Section 26 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Ken Campbell. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by E.G. Carter. Section 26, Volume 2, Chapter 12. At the Pole. In latitude 87 degrees south, according to dead reckoning, we saw the last of the land to the northeast. The atmosphere was then apparently as clear as could be, and we felt certain that our view covered all the land there was to be seen from that spot. We were deceived again on this occasion, as will be seen later. Our distance that day, December 4th, was close upon 25 miles. Height above sea, 10,100 feet. The weather did not continue fine for long. Next day, December 5th, there was a gale from the north, and once more the whole plain was a mass of drifting snow. In addition to this, there was thick falling snow, which blinded us and made things worse. But a feeling of security had come over us and helped us to advance rapidly and without hesitation, although we could see nothing. That day we encountered new surface conditions, big, hard snow waves, sastrugi, they were anything but pleasant to work among, especially when one could not see them. It was of no use for us forerunners to think of going in advance under these circumstances, as it was impossible to keep on one's feet. Three or four paces was often the most we managed to do before falling down. The sastrugi were very high and often abrupt. If one came upon them unexpectedly, one required to be more than an acrobat to keep on one's feet. The plan we found worked best in these conditions was to let Hansen's dog go first. This was an unpleasant job for Hansen and for his dogs too, but it succeeded, and succeeded well. An upset here and there was, of course, unavoidable, but with a little patience the sledge always righted again. The drivers had as much as they could do to support their sledges among these sastrugi, but while supporting the sledges, they had at the same time a support for themselves. It was worse for us who had no sledges, but by keeping in the wake of them we could see where the irregularities lay, and thus got over them. Hansen deserves a special word of praise for his driving on this surface in such weather. It is a difficult matter to drive Eskimo dogs forward when they cannot see, but Hansen managed it well, both getting the dogs on and steering his course by compass. One would not think it possible to keep an approximate right course when the uneven ground gives such violent shocks that the needle flies several times round the compass, and is no sooner still again than it recommences the same dance. But when at last we got an observation, it turned out that Hansen had steered to a hair, for the observation and dead reckoning agreed to a mile. In spite of all hindrances, and of being able to see nothing, the sledge meter showed nearly twenty-five miles. The hypsometer showed 11,070 feet above the sea. We had therefore reached a greater altitude than the butchers. December 6th brought the same weather. Thick snow, sky, and plain all one. Nothing to be seen. Nevertheless, we made splendid progress. The sastrugi gradually became leveled out until the surface was perfectly smooth. It was a relief to have even ground to go upon once more. These irregularities that one was constantly falling over were a nuisance. If we had met with them in our usual surroundings, it would not have mattered so much. But up here on the high ground, 
where we had to stand and gasp for every breath every time we rolled over, it was certainly not pleasant. That day we passed 88 degrees south and camped in 88 degrees 9 minutes south. A great surprise awaited us in the tent that evening. I expected to find, as on the previous evening, that the boiling point had fallen somewhat. In other words, that it would show a continued rise of the ground. But to our astonishment, this was not so. The water boiled at exactly the same temperature as on the preceding day. I tried it several times to convince myself that there was nothing wrong, each time with the same result. There was great rejoicing among us all when I was able to announce that we had arrived on top of the plateau. December 7th began like the 6th, with absolutely thick weather. But as they say, you never know what the day is like before sunset. Possibly I might have chosen a better expression than this last, one more in agreement with the natural conditions, but I'll let it stand. Though for several weeks now the sun had not set, my readers will not be so critical as to reproach me with inaccuracy. With a light wind from the northeast, we now went southward at a good speed over the perfectly level plain with excellent going. The uphill work had taken it out of our dogs, though not to any serious extent. They had turned greedy, there's no denying that, and the half kilo of pemmican they got each day was not enough to fill their stomachs. Early and late they were looking for something, no matter what, to devour. To begin with, they contented themselves with such loose objects as ski bindings, whips, boots, and the like. But as we came to know their proclivities, we took such care of everything that they found no extra meals lying about. But that was not the end of the matter. They then went for the fixed lashings of the sledges, and, if we had allowed it, they would very quickly have resolved the various sledges into their component parts. But we found a way of stopping that. Every evening on halting the sledges, they were buried in the snow, so as to hide all the lashings. That was successful. Curiously enough, they never tried to force the snow rampart. I may mention as a curious thing that these ravenous animals that devoured everything they came across, even to the ebonite points of our ski sticks, never made any attempt to break into the provision cases. They lay there and went about among the sledges with their nose just on the level of the split cases, seeing and scenting the pemmican, without once making a sign of taking any. But if one raised the lid, they were not long in showing themselves. Then they all came in a great hurry and flocked about the sledges in hope of getting a little bit extra. I am at a loss to explain this behavior. That bashfulness was not at the root of it, I am tolerably certain. During the forenoon, the thick gray curtain of cloud began to grow thinner on the horizon, and for the first time for three days we could see a few miles about us. The feeling was something like that one has on waking from a good nap, rubbing one's eyes and looking around. We'd become so accustomed to the gray twilight that this positively dazzled us. Meanwhile, the upper layer of air seemed obstinately to remain the same and to be doing its best to prevent the sun from showing itself. We badly wanted to get a meridian altitude so that we could determine our latitude. Since 86 degrees, 47 minutes south, we had had no observation, and it was not easy to say when we should get one. Hitherto, the weather conditions on the high ground had not been particularly favorable. Although the prospects were not very promising, we halted at 11 a.m. and made ready to catch the sun if it should be kind enough to look out. Hansel and Wisting used one sextant and artificial horizon, 
Hansen and I the other said. I don't know that I had ever stood and absolutely pulled at the sun to get it out as much as I did that time. If we got an observation here which agreed with our reckoning, then it would be possible, if the worst came to the worst, to go to the pole on dead reckoning. But if we got none now, it was a question whether our claim to the pole would be admitted on the dead reckoning we should be able to produce. Whether my pulling helped or not, it is certain that the sun appeared. It was not very brilliant to begin with, but practice as we now were in availing ourselves to even the poorest chances, it was good enough. Down it came, it was checked by all in the altitude written down. The curtain of cloud was rent more and more, and before we had finished our work, that is to say, caught the sun at its highest, and convinced ourselves that it was descending again, it was shining in all its glory. We had put away our instruments and were sitting on the sledges engaged in the calculations. I can safely say that we were excited. What would the result be after marching blindly for so long over such impossible ground as we had been doing? We added and subtracted, and at last there was the result. We looked at each other in sheer incredulity. The result was as astonishing as the most consummate conjuring trick. 88 degrees, 16 minutes south, precisely to the minute, the same as our reckoning. 88 degrees, 16 minutes south. If we were forced to go to the pole on dead reckoning, then surely the most exacting would admit our right to do so. We put away our observation books, ate one or two biscuits, and went at it again. We had a great piece of work before us that day, nothing less than carrying our flag farther south than the foot of man had trod. We had our silk flag ready. It was made fast to two ski sticks and laid on Hansen's sledge. I had given him orders that as soon as we had covered the distance to 88 degrees south, which was Shackleton's farthest south, the flag was to be hoisted on the sledge. It was my turn as the forerunner, and I pushed on. There was no longer any difficulty in holding one's course. I had the grandest cloud formations to steer by, and everything now went like a machine. First came the forerunner, for the time being, then Hansen and Wisting, and finally Bialand. The forerunner, who was not on duty, went where he liked. As a rule, he accompanied one or other of the sledges. I had long ago fallen into a reverie, far removed from the scene in which I was moving. What I thought about, I do not remember now. But I was so preoccupied that I had entirely forgotten my surroundings. Then suddenly, I was roused from my dreaming by a jubilant shout, followed by ringing cheers. I turned round quickly to discover the reason for this unwanted occurrence and stood speechless and overcome. I find it impossible to express the feelings that possessed me at this moment. All the sledges had stopped, and from the foremost of them, the Norwegian flag was flying. It shook itself out, waved, and flapped so that the silk rustled. It looked wonderfully well in the pure, clean, and shining white surroundings. Eighty-eight degrees, twenty-three minutes was passed. We were farther south than any human being had been. No other moment of the whole trip affected me like this. The tears forced their ways to my eyes, but no effort of will could keep them back. It was the flag yonder that conquered me and my will. Luckily, I was some way in advance of the others, so that I had time to pull myself together and master my feelings before reaching my comrades. We all shook hands with mutual congratulations. We had won our way far by holding together, and we would go farther yet to the end. 
We did not pass that spot without according the highest tribute of admiration to the man who, together with his gallant companions, had planted his country's flag so infinitely nearer to the goal than any of his precursors. Sir Ernest Shackleton's name will always be written in the annals of Antarctic exploration in letters of fire. Pluck and grit can work wonders, and I know of no better example of this than what that man has accomplished. The cameras, of course, came out, and we got an excellent photograph of the scene, which none of us will ever forget. We went a couple miles more to 88 degrees 25 minutes, then camped. The weather had improved and kept on improving all the time. It was now almost perfectly calm, radiantly clear, and under the circumstances, quite summer-like, minus 0.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Inside the tent, it was quite sultry. This was more than we had expected. After much consideration and discussion, we had come to the conclusion that we ought to lay down a depot, the last one at this spot. The advantages of lightening our sledges were so great that we should have to risk it, nor would there be any great risk attached to it after all since we should adopt a system of marks that would lead even a blind man back to the place. We had determined to mark it not only at right angles to our course, that is, from east to west, but by snow beacons at every two geographical miles to the south. We stayed here on the following day to arrange this depot. Hansen's dogs were really marvels, all of them. Nothing seemed to have any effect on them. They had grown rather thinner, of course, but they were still as strong as ever. It was therefore decided not to lighten Hansen's sledge, but only the two others, both Wisting's and Bialen's teams, had suffered, especially the latter's. The reduction in weight that was affected was considerable, nearly 110 pounds on each of the two sledges. There was thus about 220 pounds in the depot. The snow here was ill-adapted for building, but we put up quite a respectable monument all the same. It was dogs, pemmican, and biscuits that we left behind. We carried with us on the sledges provisions for about a month. If, therefore, contrary to expectation, we should be so unlucky as to miss the depot, we should nevertheless be fairly sure of reaching our depot at 86 degrees 21 minutes before the supplies ran short. The cross markings on the depot were done with 60 splinters of black packing case on each side, with 100 paces between each. Every other one had a shred of black cloth on the top. The splinters on the east side were all marked, so that on seeing them we should know instantly that we were to the east of the depot. Those on the west had no marks. The warmth of the past few days seemed to have matured our frost sores, and we presented an awful appearance. It was Wisting, Hansen, and I who suffered the worst damage in the last southeast blizzard. The left side of our faces was one mass of sore bathed in matter and serum. We looked like the worst types of tramps and ruffians and would probably not have been recognized by our nearest relations. These sores were a great trouble to us during the latter part of the journey. The slightest gust of wind produced a sensation as if one's face were being cut backwards and forwards with a blunt knife. It lasted a long time, too. I can remember Hansen removing his last scab when we were coming into Hobart three months later. We were very lucky in the weather during this depot work. The sun came out all at once, and we had an excellent opportunity of taking some good azimuth observations, the last of any use that we got on the journey. December 9th arrived with the same fine weather and sunshine. 
True, we felt our frost sores rather sharply that day, with minus 18.4 degrees Fahrenheit, and little breeze dead against us, but that could not be helped. We at once began to put up beacons, a work which was continued with great regularity right up to the pole. These beacons were not so big as those we had built down on the barrier. We could see that they would be quite large enough with a height of about three feet, as it was very easy to see the slightest irregularities on this perfect flat surface. While thus engaged, we had an opportunity of becoming thoroughly acquainted with the nature of the snow. Often, very often indeed, on this part of the plateau, to the south, 88 degrees 25 minutes, we had difficulty in getting snow good enough, that is, solid enough for cutting blocks. The snow up here seemed to have fallen very quickly, in light breezes or calms, we could thrust the tent pole, which was six feet long, right down without meeting resistance, which showed that there was no hard layer of snow. The surface was also perfectly level. There was not a sign of sastrugi in any direction. Every step we now took in advance brought us rapidly nearer the goal. We could feel fairly certain of reaching it on the afternoon of the 14th. It was very natural that our conversation should be chiefly concerned with the time of arrival. None of us would admit that he was nervous, but I am inclined to think that we all had a little touch of this malady. What should we see when we get there? A vast, endless plain that no eye had yet seen, or no foot had trodden? Or no, it was an impossibility. With the speed at which we traveled, we must reach the goal first. There could be no doubt about it. And yet, and yet, Whenever there is the smallest loophole, doubt creeps in and gnaws and gnaws and never leaves a poor wretch in peace. What on earth is Uroa scenting? It was Bialin who made this remark on one of the last days, when I was going by the side of his sledge and talking with him. And the strange thing is, is that he scented to the south. It can never be. Milus Ring and Suggan showed the same interest in the southerly direction. It was quite extraordinary to see how they raised their heads with every sign of curiosity, put their noses to the air, and sniffed due south. One would really have thought there was something remarkable to be found there. From 88 degrees 25 minutes south, the barometer and the hypsometer indicated slowly but surely that the plateau was beginning to descend towards the other side. This was a pleasant surprise to us. We had thus not only found the very summit of the plateau, but also the slope down on the far side. This would have a very important bearing for obtaining an idea of the construction of the whole plateau. On December 9th, observations and dead reckoning agreed within a mile. The same result was on the 10th, observation two kilometers behind reckoning. The weather and going remained about the same as on the preceding days. Light southeasterly breeze, temperature minus 18.4 degrees Fahrenheit. The snow surface was loose, but the ski and the sledges glided over it well. On the 11th, the same weather conditions, temperature minus 13 degrees Fahrenheit. Observation and reckoning again agreed exactly. Our latitude was 89 degrees, 15 minutes south. On the 12th, we reached 89 degrees, 30 minutes, reckoning one kilometer behind observation. Going and surface was as good as ever. Weather splendid, calm with sunshine. The noon observation on the 13th gave 89 degrees 37 minutes south, reckoning 89 degrees 38.5 minutes south. We had halted in the afternoon after going eight geographical miles. 
encamped in 89 degrees 45 minutes, according to reckoning. The weather during the forenoon had been just as fine as before. In the afternoon we had some snow showers from the southeast. It was like the eve of some great festival that night in the tent. One could feel that a great event was at hand. Our flag was taken out again and lashed to the same two ski-sticks as before. Then it was rolled up and laid aside, to be ready when the time came. I was awake several times during the night, and had the same feeling that I can remember as a little boy on the night before Christmas Eve, an intense expectation of what was going to happen. Otherwise, I think we slept just as well that night as any other. On the morning of December 14th, the weather was of its finest, just as if it had been made for arriving at the Pole. I am not quite sure, but I believe we dispatched our breakfast rather more quickly than usual, and were out of the tent sooner, though I must admit that we always accomplished this with all reasonable haste. We went in the usual order, the forerunner, Hansen, Wisting, Bialin, and the reserve forerunner. By noon we had reached 89 degrees 53 minutes by dead reckoning, and made ready to take the rest in one stage. At 10 a.m. a light breeze had sprung up from the southeast, and it had clouded over so that we got no noon altitude. But the clouds were not thick, and from time to time we had a glimpse of the sun through them. The going on that day was rather different from what it had been. Sometimes the ski went over it well, but others it was pretty bad. We advanced that day in the same mechanical way as before. Not much was said, but eyes were used all the more. Hansen's neck grew twice as long as before in his endeavor to see a few inches farther. I'd asked him before we started to spy out ahead for all he was worth, and he did so with a vengeance. But however keenly he stared, he could not decry anything but the endless flat plain ahead of us. The dogs had dropped their scenting and appeared to have lost their interest in the regions about the earth's axis. At three in the afternoon, a simultaneous halt rang out from the drivers. They had carefully examined their sledge meters, and they all showed the full distance, our pole, by reckoning. The goal was reached. The journey ended. I cannot say, though as I know it would sound much more effective, that the object of my life was obtained. That would be romancing rather too barefacedly. I had better be honest and admit straight out that I have never known any man to be placed in such a diametrically opposite position to the goal of his desires as I was at that moment. The regions around the North Pole, yes, the North Pole itself, had attracted me from childhood, and here I was at the South Pole. Can anything be more topsy-turvy be imagined? We reckoned now that we were at the Pole. Of course, every one of us knew that we were not standing on the absolute spot. It would be an impossibility with the time and instruments at our disposal to ascertain the exact spot. But we were so near it that a few miles which possibly separated us from it could not be of the slightest importance. It was our intention to make a circle around this camp with a radius of twelve and a half miles, twenty kilometers, and to be satisfied with that. After we had halted, we collected and congratulated each other. We had good grounds for mutual respect in what had been achieved, and I think that was just the feeling that was expressed in the firm and powerful grasps of the fists that were exchanged. After this, we proceeded to the greatest and most solemn act of the whole journey, the planting of our flag. 
pride and affection shone in the five pairs of eyes that gazed upon the flag as it unfurled itself with a sharp crack and waved over the pole. I determined that the act of planning it, the historic event, should be equally divided among us. It was not for one man to do this. It was for all who had staked their lives in the struggle and held together through thick and thin. This was the only way in which I could show my gratitude to my comrades in this desolate spot. I could see that they understood and accepted it in the spirit in which it was offered. Five weather-beaten, frost-bitten fists, they were, grasped the pole, raised the waving flag in the air and planted it as the first at the geographical South Pole. Thus we plant thee, beloved flag, at the South Pole and give to the plain on which it lies the name of King Hakon's the Seventh's Plateau. That moment will certainly be remembered by all of us who stood there. One gets out of the way of protracted ceremonies in those regions. The shorter they are, the better. Everyday life began again at once. When we had gotten the tent up, Hansen set about slaughtering Helgi, and it was hard for him to have to part from his best friend. Helgi had been an uncommonly useful and good-natured dog. Without making any fuss, he had pulled from morning to night, and it had been a shining example to the team. But during the last week he had quite fallen away, and on our arrival at the pole there was only a shadow of the old Helgi left. He was only a drag on the others and did absolutely no work. One blow on the skull and Helgi had ceased to live. What is death to one is food to another is a saying that can scarcely find a better application than these dog meals. Helgi was portioned out on the spot, and within a couple of hours there was nothing left of him but teeth and the turf at the end of his tail. This was the second of our eighteen dogs that we had lost. The Major, one of Wisting's fine dogs, left us at 88 degrees 25 minutes south, and never returned. He was fearfully worn out, and must have gone away to die. We now had sixteen dogs left and these were intended to divide into two equal teams, leaving balance sled behind. Of course there was festivity in the tent that evening. Not that champagne corks were popping and wine flowing. No, we contented ourselves with a little piece of seal meat each, and it tasted well and did us good. There was no other sign of festival indoors. Outside we heard the flag flapping in the breeze. Conversation was lively in the tent that evening, as we talked of many things. Perhaps, too, our thoughts sent messages home of what we had done. Everything we had with us now had to be marked with the words South Pole, and the date to serve afterwards as souvenirs. Wisting proved to be a first-class engraver, and many were the articles he had to mark. Tobacco, in the form of smoke, and hitherto never made its appearance in the tent. From time to time I had seen one or two of the others take a quid, but now these things were to be altered. I had brought with me an old briar pipe which bore inscriptions from the many places in the Arctic regions, and now I wanted it marked South Pole. When I produced the pipe and was about to mark it, I received an unexpected gift. Wisting offered me tobacco for the rest of the journey. He had some cakes of plug in his kit bag, which he would prefer to see me smoke. Can anyone grasp what such an offer meant at such a spot made to a man who, to tell you the truth, is very fond of a smoke after meals? There are not many who can understand it fully. I accepted the offer, jumping with joy, and on the way home I had a pipe of fresh, fine-cut plug every evening. Ah, that Wisting! He spoiled me entirely. 
Not only did he give me tobacco, but every evening, and I must confess I yielded to the temptation after a while, and had a morning smoke as well. He undertook the disagreeable work of cutting the plug and filling my pipe in all kinds of weather. But we did not let our talk make us forget other things. As we had got no noon altitude, we should have to try and take one at midnight. The weather had brightened again, and it looked as if midnight would be a good time for the observation. We therefore crept into our bags to get a little nap in the intervening hours. In good time, soon after 11 p.m., we were out again and ready to catch the sun. The weather was of the best, and the opportunity excellent. We four navigators all had a share in it, as usual, and stood watching the course of the sun. This was a labor of patience, as the difference of altitude was now very slight, the result of which we finally arrived was of great interest, as it clearly shows how unreliable and valueless a single observation like this is in these regions. At 12.30 a.m. we put our instruments away, well satisfied with our work and quite convinced that it was the midnight altitude that we had observed. The calculations which were carried out immediately afterwards gave us 89 degrees 56 minutes south. We are all well pleased with this result. The arrangement now was that we should encircle this camp with a radius of about twelve and a half miles. By encircling it, I do not, of course, mean that we should go round in a circle with this radius. That would have taken us days and was not to be thought of. The encircling was accomplished in this way. Three men went out in three different directions, two at right angles to the course we had been steering, and one in continuation of that course. To carry out this work, I had chosen Wisting, Hansel, and Bjaland. Having concluded our observations, we put the kettle on to give ourselves a drop of chocolate. The pleasure of standing out there in rather light attire had not exactly put warmth into our bodies. As we were engaged in swallowing the scalding drink, Bialin suddenly observed, I'd like to tackle this encircling straight away. We shall have lots of time to sleep when we get back. Ansel and Wisting were quite of the same opinion, and it was agreed that they should start the work immediately. Here we have yet another example of the good spirit that prevailed in our little community. We had only lately come in from our day's work, a march of about eighteen and a half miles, and now they were asking to be allowed to go another twenty-five miles. It seemed as if these fellows could never be tired. We therefore turned this meal into a little breakfast. That is to say, each man ate what he wanted of his bread ration, and then began to get ready for the work. First, Three small bags of light windproof stuff were made, and in each of these was placed a paper, giving the position of our camp. In addition, each of them carried a large square flag of the same dark brown material, which could be easily seen at a distance. As flag poles, we elected to use our spare sledge runners, which were both long, twelve feet and strong, at which we were going to take off here in any case to lighten the sledges as much as possible for a return journey. Thus equipped, and with thirty biscuits as an extra ration, the three men started off in the directions laid down. Their march was by no means free of danger, and does great honor to those who undertook it, not merely without raising the smallest objection, but with the greatest keenness. Let us consider for a moment the risk they ran. Our tent on the boundless plain without marks of any kind may very well be compared with a needle in a haystack. From this, the three men were to steer out for a distance of twelve and a half miles. Compasses would have been a good thing to take on such a walk, but our sledge compasses were too heavy and unsuitable for carrying. They therefore 
had to go without. They had the sun to go by, certainly, when they started, but who could say how long that would last? The weather was then fine enough, but it was impossible to guarantee that no sudden change would take place. If, by bad luck, the sun should be hidden, then their own tracks might help them. But to trust the tracks in these regions is a dangerous thing. Before you know where you are, the whole plain may be one mass of driving snow, obliterating the tracks as soon as they are made. With rapid changes of weather we had so often experienced, such a thing was not impossible. That these three risked their lives that morning, when they left the tent at 2.30, there can be no doubt at all. And they all three knew it very well. But if anyone thinks, on this account, they took a solemn farewell of us who stayed behind, he is much mistaken. Not a bit. They all vanished in their different directions amid laughter and chaff. The first thing we did, Hanson and I, was to set about arranging a lot of trifling matters. There was something to be done here, something there, and above all we had to be ready for the series of observations we were to carry out together, so as to get as accurate a determination of our position as possible. The first observation told us at once how necessary this was. For it turned out that this, instead of giving us a greater altitude than the midnight observation, gave us a smaller one, and it was clear that we had gone out of the meridian we thought we were following. Now the first thing to be done was to get our north and south line and latitude determined so that we could find our position once more. Luckily for us, the weather looked as if it would hold. We measured the sun's altitude every hour from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m., and from these observations found with some degree of certainty our latitude and direction of the meridian. By nine in the morning, we began to expect the return of our comrades. According to our calculations, they should then have covered the distance, 25 miles. It was not till 10 o'clock that Hansen made out the first black dot on the horizon, and not long after the second and third appeared. We both gave a sigh of relief as they came on almost simultaneously the three arrived at the tent. We told them the result of our observations up to that time. It looked as if our camp was in about 89 degrees 54 minutes and 30 seconds south and that with our encircling we had therefore included the actual pole. With this result we might have been content, but as the weather was so good and gave the impression that it would continue so, and our store of provisions proved on examination to be very ample, we decided to go on for the remaining ten kilometers, five and a half geographical miles, and get our position determined as near to the pole as possible. Meanwhile the three wanderers turned in, not so much because they were tired, as because it was the right thing to do. And Hansen and I continued the series of observations. In the afternoon, we again went very carefully through our provision supply before discussing the future. The result was that we had food enough for ourselves and the dogs for 18 days. The surviving 16 dogs were divided into two teams of eight each, and the contents of Bjallon's sled were shared between Hansen's and Wisting's. The abandoned sledge was set upright in the snow and proved to be a splendid mark. The sledge meter was screwed to the sledge, and we left it there. Our other two were quite sufficient for the return journey. They had all shown themselves very accurate. A couple of empty provision cases were also left behind. I wrote in pencil on a piece of the case the information that our tent, Polheim, would be found five and a half geographical miles northwest quarter, west by compass from the sledge. Having put all these things in order the same day, we turned in very well satisfied. 
Early next morning, December 16th, we were on our feet again. Bialand, who had now left the company of the drivers, had been received with jubilation into that of the forerunners, was immediately entrusted with the honorable task of leading the expedition forward to the pole itself. I assigned this duty, which we all regarded as a distinction to him, as a mark of gratitude to the gallant telemarkers for their preeminent work in the advancement of ski sport. The leader that day had to keep as straight as a line, and if possible to follow the direction of our meridian. A little way after Bialin came Hansel, then Hansen, then Wisting, and I followed a good way behind. I could thus check the direction of the march very accurately, and see that no great deviation was made. Bialin on this occasion showed himself a matchless forerunner. He went perfectly straight the whole time. Not once did he incline to one side or the other, and when we arrived at the end of the distance we could still clearly see the sledge we had set up and take its bearing. This showed it to be absolutely in the right direction. It was 11 a.m. when we reached our destination. While some of us were putting up the tent, others began to get everything ready for the coming observations. A solid snow pedestal was put up on which the artificial horizon was to be placed, and a smaller one to rest the sextant on when it was not in use. At 11.30 a.m. the first observation was taken. We divided ourselves into two parties, Hansen and I in one, Hansel and Wisting in the other. While one party slept, the other took observations, and the watches were of six hours each. The weather was altogether grand, though the sky was not perfectly bright the whole time. The very light, fine, vaporous curtain would spread across the sky from time to time, and then quickly disappear again. This film of cloud was not thick enough to hide the sun, which we could see the whole time, but the atmosphere seemed to be disturbed. The effect of this was that the sun appeared not to change its altitude for several hours, until it suddenly made a jump. Observations were now taken every hour through the whole twenty-four. It was very strange to turn in at six p.m., and then on turning out again at midnight to find the sun apparently still at the same altitude, and then once more at six a.m. to see it still no higher. The altitude had changed, of course, but so slightly that it was imperceptible with the naked eye. To us it appeared as though the sun made the circuit of the heavens at exactly the same altitude. The times of the day that I have given here are calculated according to the meridian of the Framheim. We continued to reckon our time from this. The observation soon told us that we were not on the absolute pole, but as close to it as we could hope to get with our instruments. The observations which have been submitted to Mr. Anton Alexander will be published, and the results given later in this book. On December 17th at noon we had completed our observation, and it is certain that we had done all that could be done. In order, if possible, to come a few inches nearer to the actual pole, Hansen and Bialin went out four geographical miles in the direction of the newly found meridian. Bialin astonished me at dinner that day. Speeches had not hitherto been a feature of this journey, but now Bialin evidently thought the time had come, and surprised us all with a really fine oration. My amazement reached its culmination when, at the conclusion of his speech, he produced a cigar case full of cigars and offered it round. The cigar at the pole. What do you say to that? But it did not end there. When the cigars had gone round, there were still four left. I was quite touched when he handed the case of cigars to me with the words, Keep this to remind you of the pole. 
I have taken good care of that case, and shall preserve it as one of the many happy signs of my comrade's devotion on this journey. The cigars I shared out afterwards, on Christmas Eve, and they gave us a visible mark of that occasion. When this festival dinner at the pole was ended, we began our preparations for departure. First we set up the little tent we had brought with us in case we should be compelled to divide into two parties. It had been made by our able sailmaker, Ani, and was a very thin, wind-proof gabardine. Its drab color made it easily visible against the white surface. Another pole was lashed to the tent pole, making its total height about 13 feet. On the top of this, a little Norwegian flag was lashed fast, and underneath it a pennant on which Fram was painted. The tent was well secured with guy ropes on all sides. Inside the tent, in a little bag, I left a letter addressed to H.M., the king, giving information on what we had accomplished. The way home was a long one, and so many things might happen to make it impossible for us to give an account of our expedition. Besides this letter, I wrote a short epistle to Captain Scott, who I assumed would be the first to find the tent. Other things we left there were a sextant with a glass horizon, a hypsometer case, three reindeer skin foot bags, some kamiks and mitts. When everything had been laid inside, we went into the tent, one by one, to write our names on a tablet we had fastened to the tent pole. On this occasion we received the congratulations of our companions on the successful result, for the following messages were written on a couple of strips of leather sewn to the tent. Good luck and welcome to ninety degrees. These good wishes, which we suddenly discovered, put us in very good spirits. They were signed by Beck and Ronnie. They had good faith in us. When we had finished this, we came out, and the tent door was securely laced together, so that there was no danger of the wind getting hold on that side. And so, good-bye to Polheim. It was a solemn moment when we bared our heads and bade farewell to our home and our flag, and then the traveling tent was taken down and the sledges packed. Now the homeward journey was to begin, homeward, step by step, mile after mile, until the whole distance was accomplished. We drove at once into the old tracks and followed them. Many were the times we turned to send a last look at Polheim. The vaporous white air set in again, and it was not long before the last of Polheim, our little flag, disappeared from view. End of Section 26, End of Volume 2, Chapter 12, At the Pole Recorded by Ken Campbell.